Welcome back. This is season two of Faking It. (gasps) Season two. We made it. We made it all the way back to season two. Uh, Faking It is a show where we check our cultural blind spots, make up for past wrongs, and come to terms with the shameful lies we've told. I just want to note on Mike that Gabe is reading this off of another laptop. That's how long it's been since we've been down here. Not yet memorized our catchphrase, tagline, motto, life wisdom. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a fairly different setup this season than we did last season. We do. It won't just be about us and our problems. I'll find a way to make it about me, I probably. Mean, I I also will probably find a way to, you know, just come to terms and admit things and make people convinced that I'm just a liar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the point of the show is that we're all liars. Yeah. Sometimes. All of us. But we have uh, we have our uh, our first guest, our first legit guest mm-hmm. of the series. We have with us Norman Brannon. Hi, Norman. Hi. How's Welcome. it going? <laughs> it's going pretty good. Thanks for coming down to my basement. I'm ready to lie. Great. No. Wait. No, no, we don't, we don't lie. This oh, is that. About, we're honest Shit. here. <laughs> please, please dump all of your lie-related material, all of your current day lies, your present tense right. lies. I, I got to tell you, it was really hard to think about lying, because what we're going to talk about is kind of so far and back in memory that yeah. it's like, shit, I got to yeah. remember lies. Right. That I probably haven't told in a long time. Yeah, and then like what? <laughs> it's like at that point, they everything feels like lies because the distant past feels like it never really happened. I'm sure I just made it all up in my head anyway. Perfect. <laughs> then like ten years late from now, you can come and do like another episode about this episode where you lied to us. It's likely. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, we're, all, we're all better people now. <laughs> we will be better, even better people then. Uh huh. So looking forward to that. Right. Season uh, twenty. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Norman, you are a guitarist extraordinaire. Uh, you could say that. Yeah. I just did. We've, so, you know, you got to <laughs> deal with it. Yeah. I, uh, I always have like a weird, like, when people ask me for like intros or bio info or stuff like that, I always think it's weird because I don't have a very linear career mm-hmm. by any stretch of the word. And so like, I just recently was writing something for the talk house And they were asking for a bio and I was like, oh, fuck, you know, so most people know me from playing guitar. Mm -hmm. That's cool. In the band? Uh, Mostly from Texas is the reason. Right. But I've played in numerous bands, Resurrection, 108, Shelter, New End Original, Gratitude, a bunch of different bands over the last 20 something years. We can bleep that. It's fine. 25 (laughs) years. Holy crap. More. Shit. Okay, almost 30 years. <laughs> Crap. Oh, watch we, as Norman has a panic attack we're gonna, on Mike. We're going to lie about that. Um, <laughs> in the last six years. And, uh, and then I've also been a writer uh, for tons of different magazines, put out a book for a fanzine I used to write called Antimatter. And, um, but I've done a lot of weird stuff. I hosted a television show once. I didn't even know that. You hosted really? yeah. a television show? I did for two years on uh, Here TV, which is like the gay network. Whoa. Uh-huh. Um, so it was like a pop culture show where I would go to different places and sort of maybe act stupid. Like I went to number seven sub and like pretended that I didn't know how to make a sandwich. It was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Were they just like, yeah, that's why you're here. We will make the sandwich. Yeah. Like you. I was like, holy shit, you put potato chips in here. Uh, oh. That's amazing. God, yeah. I, man, I used to eat at number seven, seven. I lived in Greenpoint all the time. I mean, it's delicious. It's yeah. really good. <laughs> yeah. The chips are innovation. That's true. I mean, really good. Yeah. Um, 
So you're here today. I mean, you have other, maybe the, your lives after that will come up, yeah. but all in good time. Um, but you're here today uh, to talk about your own instances of fakery, your own past transgressions. <laughs> this feels like a, uh, this feels weirdly prosecutorial. I don't like this vibe that I'm putting out, but I don't know any other way to do it. Sure. I mean, so when I was thinking about this too, and when I was thinking about the past and sort of like, when I was thinking about the show, right, specifically like listening to your guys' first episode about Exile and Guyville, I remember thinking to myself that, um, you know, Yes, it was an interesting story because God, really, you hadn't heard it. Like it was so weird to me. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, you know, indie rock. It's a very forgiving community. Nobody was going to crucify you for saying you never heard it. I mean, or at least uh, I don't think that's true. Well, you might get some like attitude, yeah. but I mean, you're not going to fear for your life. No, it's not like you know. There's not a sense in indie rock where. Um, I mean, there is a sense of authenticity, but I feel like that has been stretched over time mm -hmm. to include almost everything. Yeah. And, you know, like I just watched Calexico and Iron Wine at Prospect Park and they started playing like a salsa song. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, no, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> like I grew up, you know, in a Latino household with salsa. And so like that's already post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. But it was anyway not authentic so <laughs> so um but you know the first thing that i thought about honestly was where these things really matter where sort of fakery is it feels life and death almost and for me that was 80s hardcore that was when i was number one when i was young enough to give a shit about what people thought and um and two when i was involved in a subculture where that type of realness was sort of at a real premium yeah, and where people really did like, it was sort of like a roll of the dice every week of who was going to get their ass kicked in on the Bowery and have their doc Martin stolen. Mm -hmm. And was it my turn this week? Like for being a poser. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so sometimes I'd say pretty much everybody in that scene has had to lie <laughs> to, maintain some sense of credibility okay let let's roll it back a yeah. little bit take us take us to take us uh, to a young a young norman uh discovering like what i mean what drew you to hardcore i guess is the question yeah well right? and then the other thing i want to add is that we're talking about probably i, I imagine like two phases of <clears throat> your sort of self-identity formation mm -hmm. one is like as a fan or like a scenester whatever, no, or right. person in the scene. Not a scene yeah, yeah, yeah. But, right. And then two is that like, as a musician in bands in said scene. So I think to take us back probably is like, how'd you get involved? How, how, what did, how did that matter to you? Well, okay. So, I mean, I think the identity formation part is interesting because this was all happening at the peak of identity formation. Like this was happening basically like I'm hitting puberty, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. so I'm in junior high school and my brother sort of gets into punk for like literally like three days, maybe. Like he like, <laughs> he went to see Sham 69 at CB's uh -huh. in like 1985 or something okay. like that. And I was sort of marginally aware that he was going to this cool place and that he was seeing this punk band. Um, and this is a bizarre aside. So I grew up in Queens and um, my fourth grade teacher actually was the first person to 
give me a hardcore tape. <laughs> so New York public schools, they get it done. <laughs> they do. So her arts br- education was a lot different back then. <laughs> well, she knew that I I was into music. At the time I was into heavy metal. That's what my brother was into. So I was drawing Iron Maiden and Juice Priest logos on my fourth grade notebooks. Yeah. And she was like, oh, you like hard music. My brother plays drums in this band. You should check them out. They're great. And her brother played drums in Kraut, who were like the seminal New York hardcore band. Mm-hmm. Of course, like in fourth grade, I'm not fronting. I'm not going to lie now. <laughs> I wasn't a fan. I was just like, okay, that's cool. Uh-huh. You know, and then went ahead and kept listening to metal. But a few years later, as like puberty striking, I'm sort of trying to figure out who I am and like what my interests are. Um, you know, something about that world now starts speaking to me. So I lived across the street from this park called uh, Windmuller Park in Woodside. And in uh, in that park, <clears throat> there was this gang that used to hang out, a street gang called ZOW, mm-hmm. the Zombies of Woodside. Mm-hmm. And they were all skinheads and punks. Mm-hmm. And so they'd hang out in the back of the park with their boom boxes. They'd listen to hardcore. So I was sort of marginally aware of like what was going on and and and, and, and attracted to it in some way. But it wasn't. And this is not like white skinhead. This is like multiracial. Uh, there were actually multiracial people, although they also used to spray paint swastikas all over the place, which was a very eighties yeah. punk. A lot of mixed thing. messaging going on. <laughs> sure, sure. They weren't Nazis by any stretch. They were just sort of trying to piss everybody. Yeah, yeah. anti-society. Yeah. Right, and so skinheads, <clears throat> you're canceled. Right, <laughs> right. So. So yeah, so that was sort of like all the marginal exposure that was priming me, I think, for it. And finally, I would say, uh, you know, when I was in junior high school now and sort of like growing out of metal, sort of thinking it's sort of ridiculous. And uh, and there was a lot of bands that were doing like crossover shit. And there was one band in particular called the Crumb Suckers. They were just like... <laughs> so fucking like extreme to me like mm-hmm. that you know every song was a minute and a half and it was just fucking raging fast and the guy's voice was so good and i was just like you know i remember like there was this one song called bullshit society and i was like <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> and that spoke to me and they were the first band i ever saw as well so it it loosely started growing from that i started um buying some records here and there um and uh, and sort of like identifying with it. And I think what I identified with ultimately was I come from a super dysfunctional family. Everyone in punk seems to as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I started meeting kids in the scene, it was very, it felt very much like this is my tribe. Mm-hmm. Right. They get this, mm-hmm. you know. And how um, are you finding out about stuff? Like how are you learning about records or? So I was lucky enough to discover Crucial Chaos. That was a big one for me. That This radio show on WNYU, yeah. it would be on Thursday nights and I would listen, just I would tape it every week mm-hmm. and then try to figure out what I really liked from it and then try to figure out how to get some of that stuff. Yeah. Because you couldn't, uh, you know, I was actually having a, a conversation with Mark about it a little bit. And I was saying, so one of the problems I think with being an 80s hardcore kid was that there were only so many records, right? Mm-hmm. Like punk hadn't really, well, hardcore really hadn't blown up. 
to any place where, you know, there were tons of labels and new yeah, releases every right. week and all that stuff. So you're talking about a hundred, 150 records total yeah. Yeah. by the time I'm coming around in 1986, 1987. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so realistically it's possible for one person to have heard every fucking hardcore record that ever came out, right. you know? Right. And, and so there's definitely more of a sense of feeling like you have to hear everything. Yeah. And, and Crucial Chaos was a huge part of that for me, um, you know, because they were exposing me to stuff that I wouldn't necessarily have access to, um, especially like West Coast stuff or Midwest stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, hardcore still very regional at that time. Yeah. So New York was my world and whoever was playing uh, in New York, that's who I was loving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, so... Now you're you're still pretty young at this point, Very right? So like, yeah. I mean, I assume you're like kind of too young to really have money for records, yes. and like going to the record store must have been a kind of like, I mean, I don't know. I imagine that being a kind of like, if not frightening, kind of intimidating experience to like sort of like reach up to the counter and like slide across <laughs> like some like hardcore seven inch to the record clerk. Um, well, again, that's sort of like it, it all, everything about it felt vaguely ritualistic mm -hmm. and so exciting. Right. Yeah. And, and you kind of had this feeling that, you know, whatever you were buying from, like, I remember buying, um, I was at this record store in Long Island called uncle Phil's mm -hmm. and I was like, I got the last copy of the wide awake seven inch. And I remember just being like, so stoked. And the guy <laughs> behind the counter was just like, yeah, like he was stoked for me, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and there was this real sort of like, you know, everything felt like a rite of passage. Like I remember coming up uh, off the six train subway and walking down bleaker to Bowery mm -hmm. and being able to sort of, you know, little by little, you see the people, uh, you know, coming into focus and yeah. you see like the, the punks and the skinheads and the CBs awning. And you're just like, it felt like, Oh my God, you know, it's so exciting at the same time, terrifying mm -hmm. because it was violent yeah, right? <laughs> and I was small, right? but I did have the luxury of because my older brother got into punk for three days, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he also somehow met a few people that sort of took me under their wing and they were older and they were more in the scene. So my brother sort of dropped out and did his thing. And then I kept hanging out with these guys. And so one of them, this guy, Jim, was a skinhead and he was maybe three or four years older than me, which... You know, again, I'm 13, 14, so he's like 17, 18, still a kid, but at that time, 17, 18 was like, oh, cool, you've been around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because again, hardcore in 1987, you know, if you've been around for five years, you've seen most of it. Right. You've seen the birth and like the growth of the, like you're grizzled at a seven. And yeah. You're like, man, shit ain't like it used to be four years ago. Definitely. And there's, and there's a sense of, um, there's in this culture, there's a sense of respect and hierarchy for people who've been around mm -hmm. for people. And, and that's the term that we always used. He's been around uh -huh. mm. that knows like slow your roll. Don't talk shit to him. He's been around. Uh -huh. You don't, you don't step up He's to somebody. He's 16 and a half. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but also he can offer you validation. Like, like the clerk at the store. He right. can be like, yes, this is correct. Like, I know, because I've been there. Yes. Or whatever, you know. But you also sort of like, it's almost a disciplic secession. You learn from these people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you learn, they, they're 
they're imparting the culture right. to you. So yeah. they're transmitting, like, you have to sort of sit at their feet and wait for these sort of, like, droplets of wisdom to come out, and then you've got to parse them, like, koans or, like, Talmudic <laughs> phrases that, like, yeah. you know... I mean, yeah. well, they're, also doing, yeah. the, they're yeah. also doing some of the interpretation, I presume, like telling you sort of what the codes are. Yes. Because that's my interpretation. I, I'm, I have like very little, you know, actual experience with hardcore, but I know that it's like sort of like there are codes, there are rules. Yes. You know, and there are like sub rules for sub genres and, and different rules for different people. And so more so then than maybe now. Mm. Now I feel like there's so many different interpretations and people of like what is and what isn't hardcore. But at least in the 80s, it felt a lot more streamlined. (laughs) You know, I mean, there were still arguments of what is and isn't hardcore, but they were often regional. They weren't so much ideological. Mm -hmm. They were just sort of like, uh, this is how we dance in D.C. And this is how we mosh in New York Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But um, so that kind of stuff, you know, you felt like a student. And I was very interested in being an A-plus student. Yeah. Um, but sometimes to be an A plus student, you have to bullshit. Well, so, <laughs> well, right, so what was your sort of like, if you can remember, or if you have a sort of moment in early moment that what, what, what is your memory of kind of one of the first times you had to like kind of bullshit? Okay. So through? before we go into that, I really do want to do this thing right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me, let me sort of set this up yep. and then, and you guys can maybe describe this to the. Uh, to the listeners, because obviously mm-hmm. they can't see it. But um, so I brought in a flyer. This flyer is for a show that happened on July 11th, and I believe it was 1987. So this would have been the summer that I went to my first like New York City hardcore show. I'd mm-hmm. been to a hardcore show on Long Island before then, mm-hmm. um, but this this was the first like not this show, but that summer was the first time I went to a New York City hardcore show. Mm-hmm. So this Sorry, is what July I was, 11 when this is 1987. 87. So yeah. I'm like, uh, so this is what I'm walking into basically. Mm-hmm. All right, so take a look at this flyer, sort of read the text because it's really there's there's one part I think you'll find interesting, and uh, and sort of maybe see if you guys want to look at it and describe. Um, Maybe right. what, so you're, we, what you're looking at. Hold it with your other hand. Yeah. All right. It's a pen and ink drawing. It's a pen and ink drawing. Um, it looks like a man in a beanie. Coming a, out of a door? Coming, no, beckoning you into a closet. Well, oh, no, no, it's well, a, no, a no, club, it's a show. Probably, it's a club, yeah. it's a club, yeah. Right, it's probably the club. Saturday, July 11, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Pyramid Club, Avenue A, between Famous 6 and club. 7. Yeah. It's still there. Uh-huh. All <laughs> ages, free shirts and stickers, huge letters, no posers. <laughs> yeah. No if posers. Any, if there was any question. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, it's a, like. <laughs> uh, at the top, it says side by side, uh, down the left-hand side. Oh, the guy's holding, like, a, like, um. A banner, a, a banner, banner right? Hang, like with, with a banner hanging from like a sort of a, a stick, a stick or a some two sort by of, four or something that says hmm. altercation, altercation, altercation. <laughs> altercation. It's, it's amazing how like and, and then breakdown. It says breakdown. Yeah. Looks like two words, but maybe it's one word at the very bottom on the right. If you right. look at the design, if you like, if you always great, always great audio 
you know, always great radio, you know, when you're just sitting here describing an image. Um, right. but, uh, <laughs> so much of this flyer is taken up by like the door and the guy peeking out of it. Right. Right. And the sort of sense of like beckoning, but also and also that giant uh, that that giant boot sticking out. It's not a Doc Martin. It's something else. Um, well, I think what you're saying is 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 sort of getting at the heart of it, because yeah. you're you're saying that there's a mixed message on one level. He's beckoning you yeah, inside. He's, on the other level, there's all these rules on the door. Right. No right. fucking posers. Yeah, right. no, it's like free shirts, no posers. I want to know, like, uh, so, like, how do you enforce a no poser policy at the door? Like, well, if you're a poser, you better not even show up. Because... Well, that's sort of the point, right? Like, if you're a poser and you show up, you may regret it. Right. And 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 people did. How do you know that people were posing at a show? Were they dancing right? Mm. Did, mm. did they come in? I mean, I hate to say it. Did you have long hair? Uh-huh. Oh, well, <laughs> we all know no long hair is allowed at the show. But. Not at this point, no. Long hairs were not super welcome. But um, I would say even you must have had some sort of like, you know, uh, like way to decrypt this that, that I don't have access to. So like I'm looking at this and there's three big words side by side. Uh, altercation right. and breakdown. Right. Does side by side mean that the bands are playing side by side? <laughs> it's probably a band, right? Those like, are the three probably, bands. Those are three, yeah, bands, three right? bands. Well, you know yeah. what it reminds me of is it reminds me of like a No Girls Allowed sign on like you know a, right, a clubhouse, clubhouse on a clubhouse door. Yeah. Oh, right. That's interesting. There's something in here that's so enticing that you might want to enter if you're a girl, but you're not allowed. Right. <laughs> you're so like right. It's like no one ever made a rule for something that no one ever tried to do. But it's it's sort of interesting because it is sort of clubhousey, yeah. yeah. And th- there is a sort of almost unwritten members only kind of policy. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's actually quite welcoming until you get to no post. <laughs> like, everything before that is like just like info. You're no. like you're like super psyched, no. and and the guy's beckoning you in all ages. But here's free the shirts thing: and stickers, no <laughs> posers. But here's the thing: even posers don't think they're posers. Of course. Not. Well, so that was my question. Like now, um. Right. It's although at some level, I mean, as someone who's been like a kind of lifelong dilettante, like there are definitely moments where I was at things and I was like, I don't belong here. <laughs> like, but I'm gonna see how far I can get. Um, right. Right. Um, but um, now, did you kind of have to do some self examination when when you saw that? Where you were, you were like psyched for the side by side show, <laughs> but were you like? But am I a poser? Well, okay, so here's the thing. I would never admit to myself that I was a poser, but mm-hmm. of course I was a poser. Mm-hmm. I was a child, number uh-huh. one. <laughs> <laughs> um, number two, I wasn't, you know, hard as nails. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like these guys were out there. And then, you know, hardcore at that time was still, I would say, at least in New York, it was a street culture. Yeah. A lot of these people were living in squats. They yeah. were, yeah. you know, on the streets. And, uh, you know, there was definitely a fair share of, uh, suburban kids from New Jersey coming in and Long Island coming in and Connecticut even. And so like, you know, that existed, that had already been integrated into the scene, but, but we looked at the sort of like the fabric of New York hardcore with bands like Agnostic Front and the Chromags, like real fucking like yeah. real men. Yeah. <laughs> we're, who are yeah. still doing it we're still yeah. somehow. <laughs> yes. And and that and that was attractive to me on multiple levels. Um, I mean, I think that I came from a very violent childhood. Mm-hmm. And so 
I, I always said like my, um, my options sort of were that I was either going to become a violent person or I was going to become like just the super introvert. I probably became an introvert who then sort of like was interested in maybe surrounding himself in this violent community, mm-hmm. but mostly because I felt like everyone's heart was in the right place. Uh-huh. And that was sort of the bottom line. Like what made me want to be a part of this was the fact that I did feel like at the end of the day, everybody just, you know, they wanted what was best for each other. Mm -hmm. They were like, this is our family. Right. And I didn't have a family. So I was like, that sounds good to me. So I, so to sort of take this back to the, the poser question, right. That kind of like points out what the danger of the poser is then. Right. Yeah. Cause the poser is not just someone who's like pretending to hear a band they haven't heard, which seems like a fairly harmless kind of sure. lie, right? There's someone there that's infiltrating your family that doesn't belong there. Right. And that's 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 where the heart of it is, mm-hmm. right? Because posers can come into a family and wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of why I think there was this protectionism uh, against, you know, fakers. Mm-hmm. But there was also skepticism t- towards new jacks. Okay. So this is also a little bit of terminology, the... please. <laughs> yeah. Because what I'm thinking yeah. new jack is probably not what you mean by new jack. I mean, new jacks are probably what you think it means. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. a new jack is somebody who hasn't proven himself. Okay. He he's, hasn't been around in the scene long enough. He hasn't contributed anything. Um, you know, he may be a shitty dancer on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of ways to be a new jack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that time I was a new jack. I did have the sort of um, again, like the, the privilege of having someone who had been around mm-hmm. yeah. sort of bringing me in a little bit. So I got a little bit of the benefit of the doubt from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But that said, of course there were points where like, you know, I didn't know everything. Yeah. I couldn't know everything. Yeah. And so like, you know, one, one story that I, I had mentioned to Mark that I think, you know, it's, it's a stupid story, but it's funny to me that it still stays in my mind because, um, I remember the lie, Mm -hmm. which was uh, just a conversation I was having with some dudes. And Youth of Today in 1987, 1988 were like the New York hardcore band. Like by 1988, everybody wanted to be down with Youth of Today. And um, I was a huge fan, right? So uh, we're talking about Youth of Today as everyone did. And, you know, the more contrarian of my friend group says, yeah, I mean, they're good, but they're just sort of like an abuse ripoff. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the abuse seven inch has that song drug free youth and they growl the same way. And it's kind of just a ripoff, man. And I remember just being like, yeah, that's probably pretty true. I mean, they're doing their, they're putting their own spin on things. It's pretty, it's still pretty, I think it's original still, you know, I mean, it sort of sounds like SSD too, you know, like I'm, you know, yeah. playing yeah. the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like literally just panicking in my brain because I'm like, fuck, I don't know what the abuse sound like. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard the abuse seven inch. I know they're a popular New York right. hardcore band from before my time. And so one of the things that, so there were two things about that that I remember. So one being that the lie, the way that I just so seamlessly just lied and went with it. And, and would it have been so bad to say, you know, I just never heard that seven inch. Like, Maybe. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know. It, but yeah, it seems like it might have been bad. It could have been. I, you know, again, I didn't want to put my credibility at stake mm-hmm. because right. that puts your safety at stake. Right. So I was like, I went with it. But the other thing is that in 1988, 
there was no YouTube, there was no Spotify. I couldn't just pull up the abuse. Right. And the seven inch, what, they pressed like 300 copies or right, something. You have to like, meet somebody who had it, <laughs> go, to, go to their house and listen to Manipulate it them into like casually putting it on. Yeah, or be, yeah. you know, or the worst being like, um, Oh, you know, my abuse tape got eaten up. Can you make me a new one? <laughs> so like, you know, I had to figure out how to listen to this record and it took me a while. It took me long enough that I actually repeated that lie. And that's one of the reasons why it yeah. sticks in my brain. Mm -hmm. Cause I was in another conversation, not too many months later where I just stole his position. Nice. And I was the guy now saying, yeah, but they sort of ripped that off of the abused, you know, uh -huh. and like because right, he sounded so great saying it, he did. And yeah, it was and like his criticism sounded like it was right. very well founded. Maybe he got it from somebody else too. Who knows? That's true, right? right? Like, and did, so, do you ha did you have a plan for when the whoever you were talking about just went? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. You don't think that far ahead. <laughs> but, you know, I was also maybe hoping, because I wasn't going to be schooling someone who was older school than me. Mm. So maybe I was also hoping that he didn't know what the abuse sounded right. like. So eventually... And then you're just two empty mirrors facing each other, like reflecting <laughs> each other's ignorance. But points are being scored no, no, regardless. Like, that, yes. that's how it works. Yes. You know? and, and, and I definitely feel like... I, it was funny because I also remember this real sense of conviction when I was telling that lie. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like I knew what the abuse sounded like in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I listened to the abused, and I was like, "Oh, he was right. Yeah, yeah this totally sounds like you today. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Thank God I'm parroting the correct opinion. Yeah, you know. So that was a, you know, that was something, and that's something that I feel like everyone back then must have done at some point mm -hmm. because again, the accessibility for these records was not there. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, like when I was talking about getting the last wide awake record, that was probably the last wide awake wake record. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, that was probably it. Yeah. And they weren't repressing cause they don't have the money or, yeah. you know, whatever. So that stuff, I think that's, I would say like one tier of hardcore fakeism. Is so, so you're okay. So, so, it's a supply demand problem, right? There's yeah. something about the there's something about the lack of supply that virtually guarantees that some level of fakery is going to be circulating absolutely in in the scene, right? And yes. especially the more popular it gets, right? Even though it's getting more popular, those old records are not, you know, they're not circulating at the same rate even if people are passing off their like third generation tapes, you know, to other people. Right. Um but also not, expertise is the currency. So so right you're kind of almost pressured into having these opinions. Yes. Because just to have something to say to sort of like build up, uh, build up a persona, a personality and kind of like a, a, a critical viewpoint. Yes. That people will be like, Oh yeah, he had a, he had an interesting idea about this record that, mm -hmm. that we all because you like. keep, you keep talking about this stuff and pretty soon you're the guy that's been around.
how does that process like can you now I I you got to that point where you were the kind of a kind of elder at some point. Right. Um so was there a moment when you knew that it happened? When you were like, "Oh, wait, I'm like in it's like my cats in the cradle moment." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, probably not until the 90s because I feel like there was still degrees of faking it mm-hmm. throughout that first four definitely the first four year period, Mm -hmm. let's say 1987 to 1990. Mm -hmm. I can definitely think of numbers of times where I was just completely flying by the seat of my pants on, Mm -hmm. on things I was saying, things I was doing, like, you know, just trying to feel like I was, you know, there, Mm -hmm. but, but actually, so this, this might lead us into tier number two, which I think is sort of, uh, related to the idea that, um, the idea of getting to the place where you've been around. Mm-hmm. And this isn't necessarily, this isn't my faking it because I do, I actually have been around since this age mm-hmm. and I have pictures to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I did go to my first shows when I was 12 and 13. Yeah. Um, I also have parents that don't care about me. So that explains why I was out you know, in bad neighborhoods going, hanging out with skinheads. Right, right, right. <laughs> Most people, they didn't have that. So, but uh, when I think about hardcore faking it, the other thing I think about is how everyone says they started going to shows when they were 12 and 13. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sort of like, here's the deal. Like, I remember everybody who was at the shows who was my age because <laughs> there weren't that many of us. A couple of people in bands, a couple of people that were like, you know, Sammy Siegler, uh, he was a drummer for Youth Today and Side by Side and Project X. He's maybe a year older than me. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so like I sort of saw him as like, wow, he's in the bands. He's amazing. Yeah. He was like my idol for that. And then, um, you know, Freddie Madball, but he was Roger Moret from Agnostic Front's younger brother. He's been going to shows since he was like eight, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so good for him. That right. shit's on, you know, video. Uh-huh. We know you're the, uh-huh. you were there. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, people like that. But realistically, if there were, if the scene was overrun with 13 year old kids, I would have known and I would have been <laughs> friends with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I was always the youngest in my friend group. Uh-huh. Like everyone I knew was like 17 to 20. Let's yeah. say that yeah. was like were the people that I hung out with. So I, what that is, is it says something about also the value of how long you've been around. Yeah. Right. And if you can add a few years, <laughs> right. it'll, it'll get you there faster uh-huh. to the place where you've been. Right. Around. So instead of having to spend <laughs> whatever, four years, uh, acquiring that kind of status and knowledge and whatever, you can just tack two years onto the back end <laughs> and right. cut cut it in half. Right. And there were definitely, okay, so this is sort of related, and I would say this is maybe even a, a third tier, because there are things about hardcore that are like the, the telltales for like how long you've been around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the records you've heard, when you started going to shows, um, the other one being famous shows or venues that you've been at. Right. Yeah. And so like one place, like I remember, and this is actually really funny. I feel like it was Ray or Purcell. So Youth of Today eventually became my friends. Mm-hmm. And I actually eventually wound up in a band with half of them. Mm-hmm. And so I hung out with them a lot. And what was humorous about that too was that when I was a kid and watching them, 
I remember thinking like, oh my God, these guys are so old, you know, like <laughs> these guys, they got it figured out. They're like vegetarians and straight edge and talking about all these smart things. And, you know, at the end of the day, like they're like five years older than me or something. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. just like, okay. But that is huge when you're that age. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is a massive age difference. But it was the difference between 14 and 19 or 20. That's a know? big, that, that I, is a big age difference. I like, guess. Maybe now at my age, I think. You're all kids. Well, yeah, but I mean, think back to like, you know, think back to the first time, like, you know, you went from middle school to high school. Yeah. Like, if you're like me, I mean, especially as a, as a scrawny short person, you know, you like go from a place where you're a, an older child, like, and then there's some other slightly younger children. Yeah. To a place where you are in, in social contact with adults. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. They seem yeah. really adults. Yeah. They're so tall. Yeah. And they are, they have the physical attributes of adults. And well, not only that, but I imagine that, you know, these guys in bands, they're playing shows, they're going to other places, they're meeting other people. They're kind of, uh, they're kind of refining their, you know, their dress, their behaviors in ways that you don't have access to. Right. At the age that you're at. So you see them at a show or on stage or whatever, and they're like, they're presenting all of it. Right. And, and, like, and, and I will say, they like, have it figured out. Those know? guys specifically, because they were like, <clears throat> they were just, you know, suburban kids from Connecticut, mm. they had the cool new Nike sneakers mm-hmm. and all the new sportswear and stuff. And like, you know, yeah. I, I mean, my parents were like literally bankrupt. We had our car repossessed. Like, yeah. they weren't buying me shit. Yeah. So like anything that I bought, it had to be like a present or like, you know, like mm-hmm. I think my first pair of docs had to be like, you know, Christmas present or yeah. something yeah. like that. You yeah. Know? But so I, I brought them up again because when we were in a band together, um, I feel like this was them. I'm, I'm going back into my memory banks, but I feel, you know, we had tons of talks about, you know, old hardcore and stuff like that. And I could have sworn that Ray or Purcell asked me if I had ever been to Rock Hotel. Mm-hmm. And I know that whoever asked me, I said, yes, uh-huh. I have not been to Rock Hotel. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What is Rock Hotel? Yeah, yeah. So Rock Hotel was sort of like this place on Jane Street, mm-hmm. which totally d- would not make any sense for me to have been. I would have had to be like 10 to have yeah. been to Rock Hotel. Mm-hmm. It was, um, but it was a spot. I think it's mostly famous, honestly, for um, it, it's where the Chromex shot the We Gotta Know video, mm-hmm. which is also a, a show and video where everyone was there. Sure. <laughs> right. There were, there were 10,000 people. In yeah. The audience. <laughs> Everybody saw the, saw the shot mm-hmm. shot. Um, it, you know, just a lot of legendary shows were there. Yeah. And, uh, eventually the promoter for rock hotel, um, sort of just took the rock hotel name and started booking shows at the Ritz, mm-hmm. which is now Webster hall. Yeah. But, um, that now I've been to rock hotel shows at the Ritz, Sure, but I have not been to right. rock. Hotel. So were you just like in your mind, like, we're really talking about a nominal distinction here. Uh, In my mind, I was sort of like, yeah, like, I was like, well, I mean, you know, Bad Brains played Rock Hotel. I've seen Bad Brains. Uh Uh-huh. Therefore, (laughs) I'm the transitive property of having been to shows. I might as well have been. Yeah. Yeah. I might as well have done this. This That's a lot of this. Gabe is very familiar with this because this is his entire approach to culture, where if he sees something or if he is aware of something that it seems like he should have seen or heard, he's just like, 
I probably I probably have seen or heard points, it. <laughs> at many points, it just becomes an affirmative. Yeah, yeah. right. And you know, I, I don't know. You, if either of you know the, the movie The Squid and the Whale. Yeah, where yeah. There's a oh, scene where yes. he plays he plays the the Pink Floyd song. Yes, and he gets busted because they're like, "You didn't write that song." And he's like, "Well, I." He gets it. Wait, could've. he he, go, he plays right. I could have. No, no, no. Is it, I felt like I, I, I felt like, like I could have. Yeah. Right. It's because he plays, he <laughs> plays a Pink Floyd song at a school talent show. As an original. As an original. Um, I forget what is it. Wish you were here. Yeah, I think yeah it's so. wish you were here. <laughs> it's not and, even like a yeah. Yeah, right. and then like it's like his <laughs> mom's new boyfriend is like extremely uncomfortable because he's like, what do I do? Like right. in, in this situation. Anyway. Yeah, and player. then his defense is like, I, I, I might as well have written that. Right. <laughs> right. You know, like, but I felt like that, right? I didn't identify with it at all when I saw the film. Oh, but I was now, like, I know that feeling. I would never have the balls to actually like do something. Now like in that, retrospect, but. I feel like I definitely understand that feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty extreme. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, but there's definitely, I mean, you know, I've probably skirted it. I'm sure I've written songs that were heavily borrowed mm-hmm. from something else that I was like, look, if nobody calls me on it, then I borrowed it far well, enough. Well, but there's a difference between <laughs> being like, well, you know, all music built, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and all music is right. sort of borrowed on past traditions and being like, here's a song I wrote. It's called Love Me Do. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, but then you get into like the Led Zeppelin question, right? right. Or like, yeah, I yeah. I mean, that's like, yeah, they changed it, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it gets <laughs> squicky when there are large sums of money involved. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, so, so at this point, you're in bands. I mean, we've right. kind of moved into the 90s yeah. and like, I wonder how it's different, how your experience of this, like you said, you were in a sort of friendly relationship with, with these people. They were in your band yeah. and they asked you a question about something that you may or may not have done. And you, and you I immediately st- were I, like, I did it. I turned right back into a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Partially because like, you know, those guys, you know, they're my friends and peers now, but like, I still sort of just grew up with them mm. before they were my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that said, like they were, they became my friends early. Ray Capo uh, kind of walked me through dropping out of high school when I was 16. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like, here's what you got to do. Well, I was basically on the fence and I remember either he called me or I called him and we were just talking about stuff. And I was just like, man, I just want to leave school. And he's like, do it. <laughs> oh, that's the walkthrough. <laughs> well, you know, then we had a conversation because yeah. I was like, well, what would I do? And yeah. and he sort of like walked me through it. Mm-hmm. And it was very like. We should say now that Norman holds an advanced degree. So every, right. everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in a gutter. Um, but I did drop out and everything is great. But like, you know, that was that's how early he was in my life. Right. Yeah. Like. Mm-hmm. I, I was seeing him play in 13. By the time I was 16, mm-hmm. he was helping me out of high school. Yeah. Um, but so because of that, I think I still, you know, with certain people from that world and from that, you know, I still feel like a little kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really weird. And there's no, they, they look at me now as a total peer, right? Like mm-hmm. I've been in successful bands. I've sold a ton of records. Like, uh, you know, everyone knows who I am. Like I'm in the scene, yeah, you know, yeah. like I'm, I've been around. Right, right. <laughs> um, so like the, the playing floor is totally even, but still you put me in a room with John from the Chromags and mm. I'm just like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever I have to say to like, please you or seem like that. I am like that. I'm as cool as hopefully you think I am. Yeah. Yeah. Right, like right. the joke's and, on you right. that you're cool at all. <laughs> he actually does. Oh, well, nice. um, he's a good, he's a good dude. Mm. We're, we're, we're tight. Good. But, but, 
there's still that sense. And yeah. so that, that moment, I think, uh, this weird primal instinct came in and I just panicked and was like, yes, mm-hmm. I was there, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and no, I was not like, yeah. And I know that, and I remember that because as soon as I said it, I wished I hadn't have said it because mm-hmm. uh, I certainly didn't want them to start asking me questions about right. it, yeah. <laughs> and then, or, or or worse, like be like, "Hey, everybody, <laughs> Norm was at this show. Tell us, tell us, everyone, oh, tell right. the whole room what you saw and heard." Right. Like the legendary show that I remember, everybody always talked about was exploited in Chromags at, at Rock Hotel. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that happened when I was 10. So definitely was not there. (laughs) Right. What do you think it is? um, That particular desire um, seems interesting to me to, to want to say that you were, because to say that, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, like if you say you've heard a record that you haven't heard, all you have to do is get out of that conversation and then find that record <laughs> and and listen True. to it. And then it's almost like it, the line never happened because now you do and you have heard the record, but you can never go back to that show. That's true. Um, why, what is the impulse there? Is, is it the same impulse or is it? Well, I have, if, I, if I can just add a yeah. little bit to that, like you talked a little bit about, especially in the eighties, there was a sort of rarity. There weren't that many people at, at each show. Yeah. There weren't that many records pressed of any given record. But, you know, as time goes on, it gets easier and easier. By the mid-90s, there's CDs of all this stuff. There's, like, you can't go to the show again. Right. But. You can see it on YouTube, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and Well, eventually. And, yeah. and there's more shows and there's more opportunities. Is there something about hardcore where it's it's trying to sort of preserve that early state in a certain way of, like, the rarity of that, the real currency of, like, the experience or the, or the listener, the whatever it is. Yes. I mean, I think that like, it's one of the reasons why the collector culture is so huge in mm-hmm. hardcore. There are Ooh. still people who have to own, like somebody I know just posted a picture of their youth of today collection. And it was like an entire frame of a, um, one of those Calax Ikea things. I mean, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I didn't yeah. even realize that youth, youth today only have like three albums, I think like, yeah, it's like, it's like a yeah. million pressings in every color. And yeah. you know, it's just like every fuck up and test pressing and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, there, yeah. there is a real sort of preservation and sort of knowledge that there's a tradition here that we're upholding. I do think that that's sort of been lost a little bit over time, but there's a lot of, there's still a lot of, um, uh, focus or, or discussion of archival work and, and things like that. And obviously different scenes had different versions of that. Obviously Ian Mackay, you go to discord house and it's still basically a shrine to DC hardcore. Like he's got everything there. Um, you know, there's nothing like that that I know of in New York, um, there was no centralized New York archivist the way that Ian mm-hmm. sort of took that role for himself. But um, but there is a sense that 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 experience is important, or at least there was a sense. I, I can't really talk so much for how people think about it now. Yeah. But there definitely was a sense that the experience is part of what makes you. It's mm-hmm. part of what makes you who you are. If you were there for these sort of seminal moments, 
it's 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 not just that oh I'm so jealous that you saw the Chromags. It's it's more that you experienced the culture at a specific time, and that informed something about who you are and your understanding of this culture, and that's valuable. There's something conferred on you by that experience that can't be replicated. Yes, at all. It's like um, it's like a tree ring, right? You look at a a ring in a tree, and it's a record of the weather of like this period of time. Right. Right. And you can, I I don't know why I just thought about this, but you can do comparative tree ring dating, right. Where the way you kind of like recreate a climate record is by finding matching tree rings, right. From, from timber in the area. So an older tree with like a ring that matches a ring in a younger tree well, even though one tree is 50 years and the other is 50 years old, actually, with a little bit of overlap, you've got a record mm. of 80 years. Wow. Um, so there's something about, right, that kind of specificity. Um, well, you can pinpoint, I mean, to, to bring the analogy to people, it's like you can pinpoint where that person fits into the kind of range of, like, Who's a, who's been who's been around, right? And who's been less around? Mm-hmm. And 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 there are differences that are like you know I mean obviously over the years I've met most of my quote unquote heroes from back then, and it's still sort of funny to think about because you know in the eighties again there weren't that many records, there weren't that many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you saw anyone on the street wearing a side by side t shirt, yeah, you immediately said, "What's up?" Yeah, like. Yeah fuck, why aren't we friends? You know, that, that thing like actually persists because I remember I was like, you know, when I was like in middle school, I had, I I was really into like early 80s, late 70s, West Coast punk, right? Mm-hmm. So I had like on my black backpack in whiteout pen, like, you know, the names of all these bands or whatever. And I had like a, a you know, a, the germs burn on oh, yeah. there. And I remember some skin, there was like one skinhead girl at our school who like angrily pulled me aside one day and was like, <laughs> Why do you have the germs written on your backpack? And I was like, I like the germs. <laughs> so were you posing or did you I like was the not. Germs? I really did right. like the germs. Cool. How did it turn out between the two of you? Uh we didn't know how to talk. We didn't know how to deal with she each other. It was just like two cats who have to live in the same house but don't get along. Like, right. just, like I guess that's it. cool. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I remember actually um in my last year of high school, a girl walked into my English class wearing a girl biscuit shirt. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my God, because mm. I, I had no friends in my school. Like all my friends were in the city. I, I went to school because I had to legally. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and this girl walks in and I just walked up to her. I was like, oh my God, you like Gorilla Biscuits? And she's like, oh, it's my sister's. It was on the floor. I just put it on. And you were just like, where is your sister? <laughs> I was like, damn you. <laughs> um, but we actually did sort of become friends after that, I um. think, because she was like, Okay, you're sort of like my sister. That's cool. Like, <laughs> I was like, all right, great. Um, but so, yeah, th- these these experiences confer a sense of who you are. And so one of the things I was saying about, like, who you are and, and sort of the material differences. Um, so now, in the last three or four years, I've been working in real estate, and I'm in a small group of three people. And the principal broker in the group, whose business it is, um, was the singer for a band called Cause for Alarm, who were a seminal 1980s hardcore band from like, I think they broke up in 83. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's, early they yeah, that's, are. That's, 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 that's for real. <laughs> and, and Cause for Alarm, their seven inch was definitely in that sort of like 
pack of records that you had to know. Mm -hmm. And luckily it was one of the first things that I had on tape where I was like, you did know. Yeah, I knew it. I was really into it. Not just now, but you knew it then. No, I knew it then. And then they played a reunion show at the Ritz. Um, was it with, no, that was Kraut. Oh, they did a Super Bowl of hardcore. Mm-hmm. Kraut did a reunion with GBH at the Ritz. That was mm-hmm. also awesome. Mm-hmm. And I got to see Kraut and I was stoked. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Cause for Alarm did a reunion at the Ritz for one of the Super Bowl of hardcores, I think. And, uh, and so I got to see them in the 80s, mm-hmm. even though it was a little after the time. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so belated. Um, yeah. But, but so Keith, who, who is the singer and who now I've been working with for four years, he's become over the last 20 something years, one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, now he's, he's 10 years older than me. Uh, so I'm 45. So he's around 55. He's, um, you know, he's got kids, grown kids and a small kid. And, you know, he, he lives in Florida and he's very just chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when we talk about hardcore, it's almost like he comes back, yeah. like into yeah. this, in, into being. Uh-huh. And the way he looks at hardcore and the way he looks at the scene, I just, it's interesting to me. It's the reason why I wanted to meet everybody who came before me because I was like, this is not my experience. Yeah. This guy experienced something totally different. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes I'm talking to him and, and he's like, clearly like, that's not hardcore. Mm. Yeah. So, it's, so it never goes away is what yeah. you're saying. It doesn't matter that your peers now or that time has sort of like, you know, you, it, I, I guess it was important at the time, but like now you can look back and be like, was it really that important? Like what, right. the way I laced my docs or whatever. Um, That's still important. Actually. Okay. I'm so sorry. I, um, I still give side eye to people who don't know how to tie them. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's why I wear have all. have to tell us uh, off mic after, after this. That's why so I wear we Velcro shoes. I don't get into this problem. Um, well, I, I did want to ask like one thing, which was that, I mean, I think you, you may have sort of answered it, but I wanted to ask if there was a moment you know, at a certain point in the nineties, you're in a, in a bunch of bands and you're touring all around, yeah. right? Like you're touring mm-hmm. the country. It's not just regional yep. and you're interacting with other regional bands, presumably yeah. playing with them, um, you know, sort of like encountering other scenes was, was that, did that make it, um, was that sort of another new level of like, you're in Portland or you're in, you know, Seattle and like they have a whole history that you don't really know that much about because how could you? Right. Was that intimidating or at that point, because you've been in your own scene for so long, did you feel kind of like, no, I have sort of mastery of my own sort of realm and I'm yeah. bringing that here. Was, was there, a, I mean, what I'm essentially asking is, was there a point where you felt a little bit more comfortable sort of in your own skin? Yeah. And that's why I was saying, like, I think, um, one of the stages of insecurity that I had in the eighties, one was obviously that I was young and, yeah. and that I was younger than everybody. It seemed, mm-hmm. um, two was that I hadn't been around that long, yeah. you know, like, uh, now granted you could have been around for five years and be considered old school, but for most of that time I'd been around for a couple of years, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. two and a half years or something. And I was just like, I am a new Jack. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to like pose that I'm, you know, anything else. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can be a legit new Jack or you can be mm-hmm. like a poser new Jack. Yeah. So, uh, legit new Jacks will eventually be around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, um, you know, I think that that period was completely fraught mm-hmm. and I really, that's where any real fakery would be. But like after I'd say 91, 
when at that point I'd say I'd, I'd been around for five or six years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I've been around. Mm-hmm. Right. Now there were tons of people who came into the scene in the 90s who had barely seen a show in the 80s. Right. So they were like, whoa, you got to go to that? You saw a Saturday matinee at the Pyramid? You saw, you know, you went to shows at the Lismar Lounge? You went, to, you know, like those types of things. Mm-hmm. Then it was like, <laughs> you just bask in your at that point 19 year old yeah. authority like i didn't have to lie anymore yeah. like it was cool because yeah. my actual reality now was cool yeah um and so there was nothing when we started going on tour and and, and sort of meeting other people it was more for me just a fascination of what hardcore looked like in other places especially yeah. in europe i mean the first time i went to europe mm. That was so weird mm-hmm. because like, I remember like the first place we went to was, um, East Germany. It was right after the wall came down. Mm-hmm. And so it was very East yeah. Germany. Yeah. And, uh, this kid showed up, um, who we've stayed at his house. He was wearing this like long sleeve, brand new side by side shirt that I don't know who made. Mm-hmm. And it was ugly, <laughs> but I was like, "Oh, this is adorable." Like, do you know what I had to do to get this? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, t-shirts—that's another whole story yeah. of like, yeah. you know. Anyway, but um, but he, you know, I thought it was sweet that to a certain extent they were trying to just copy what whatever they could find out about what happened yeah. in yeah. New York. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, whether it was the style or the music or the t-shirt or whatever it was, I mean, to me, that was cute and yeah. in, in a nice way. Yeah. I wasn't going to be like, you fucking poser. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, but that's an amazing kind of like trajectory. It's not that long, right? Right. You. No, not at all. Yeah. And then but you felt so comfortable that you were like. Oh man, like that shirt's ugly, but like, who cares? Like, this is cool. Like we're, you know, you're finding out what you want to know about the world. I'm also growing up, right? Like I'm not a kid. I mean, I'm still a kid in retrospect, you know, and relevant to what I am now. Like I'm a kid, Yeah. but you know, also like I grew up fast, you know, like I left home when I was 16 and, and sort of like have been on my own ever since and sort of just, um, and started to you know, reassess what the hell is important. And some of these things that, you know, seemed important, like whether or not I went to the shutdown show at CB's, spoiler, I did not. <laughs> this, but apparently everybody else in the world has. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those shows. Yeah. But here's the thing, like you were talking about this earlier too, um, where you were talking about being young and money, access to money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really had to, decide how I was spending yeah. my money. Yeah. And sometimes that was decided for me when Karen said, fuck you, you're not old enough to come into this club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes she was like, I don't care, go. Uh-huh. And, oh, actually this will be, we can throw that into this as well. Uh, another thing that everyone seems to have in hardcore is a story about how they or somebody they know snuck into CBs in the case of a kick drum. is this like one of these like things where like somehow every a friend of everyone's friend like had bill murray say something to them i have a feeling that it happened once Mm -hmm. yeah and and, it didn't happen dozens or right like and i feel like it may have happened with sammy siegler the the drummer of youth today he Mm -hmm. was he was very petite like Mm -hmm. he probably could have fit in it and it would have been it would have worked um i i will say i used that story once 
Uh huh. Even yeah. though I got into the show, I was fine. Right, but you were like, <laughs> but, it's not enough to just get in. You have to demonstrate how badly you wanted to get in. Well, I. It was also very feasible. This was like uh-huh. this was a lie that was feasible because. So in in the eighties, I didn't have that many friends that were in bands. But I did have one friend who joined this band. Um, so my friend Kevin joined a band called In Your Face, which was um, Ernie from Token Entry had this, uh, it was sort of like his side band. And so Kevin was just a sick drummer. He joined the band. They were playing a, a matinee. And uh, I went. But I thought it was more funny or interesting to say that uh, I couldn't get in because right. technically mm-hmm. I was too young. I, I had a fake ID that worked sometimes and didn't other times. I feel like it worked when the show was maybe not as well attended and they needed my money and maybe didn't work when the sure. show was packed yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. or or maybe when she felt the heat from the cops or something. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it was a real crapshoot as to whether or not I was going to get in. But I thought it would be funny if I told people that I got in through the kick kick drum case. But now I swear, like, I'm pretty sure that if you Google, you know, smuggled into CBs in a kick drum case, you'll see like 10 stories. Uh (laughs) Like it's, no, it's great. Cause it's like, it's also, it's like, it becomes like lore. Yes. Mm -hmm. But lore that lots of people can use. It's like, it's like, I also pulled the sword out of the stone. Right. You know, know, on this, on this other occasion, amazingly, but Mm -hmm. like, yes. And it's, and, and so what's funny about all these lies and it's not like I was lying all the time, but you know, these are the lies that I'm sort of like, picking out in my brain, yeah. you know, as we're, t- as we're thinking about this. And it's funny how just within the course of five years, immediately I was just like, oh, that's stupid. Yeah. Like actually the truth was cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. It's like, you didn't need to gild the lily, man. Like, yeah. You were, you were there. That's enough. <laughs> that was totally enough. Mm-hmm. And so, and so one of the things when you were talking about money, and I think this is, this goes to everyone who says that they've been going to shows since they were 13. Well, great. Unless you're allowance was $40 a week or something, which maybe it was. Yeah. Mine was not. Right. I think I got like $3 a week. I had to really sort of figure out what I was spending my money on. And that could have been a record that week. That could have been the show. That could have been um, a t-shirt at the show, like whatever it could I, I save up. So I, yes. Did I hang out in front of CBs a lot? I did. I didn't go to all the shows. I didn't yeah, go into right. all the shows Yeah. Um, because I didn't have the money right? or Karen said, fuck you and kicked me out <laughs> or like whatever. But I did get into some and I got into enough, but I didn't get into, you know, so like the shutdown show, that was a show that I did not get into. And so the shutdown show, if you don't know, that was just like, we uh, do not also happened in, <laughs> it, this was in 1987, I think as well. And it was like a famous show where, um, CBs for some reason at some point had a no stage diving policy, which seems really dumb. Uh-huh. And, uh, but people were trying to respect it uh-huh. because, you know, people liked Hilly Crystal, mm-hmm. people liked CBs. Obviously, they were doing the matinees, they didn't want to fuck it up. But, um, so side by side, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, and I want to say Pagan Babies, maybe like we're playing, and like, uh, and Youth of Today get on stage and they're like, say something to the effect of like, uh, you know, this club's got some rules, but you know, we don't care or something like that. <laughs> and like, everybody just takes that as license to just freak the fuck out over mm-hmm. the next song. Uh-huh. The, you know, bodies flying all over the place. It's a fucking shit show. There's 8,000 people on stage. Like yeah. it's just like a nutty right. shit. And 
Hilly basically just shuts it all down and bans Youth of Today from CBs, and mm-hmm. they can't play there anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they ever played there, at least in the 80s again. Um, but that's one of those sort of seminal shows that people, everybody wants to say that they were there. Right. But I think there's this interesting thing where, like, you you're, what you're talking about is kind of an evolving story where, for some people, they're like, yes, I was at every show. And maybe they were. Yeah. But probably not. But a lot of them are like they're basing their identity on being at every show, having every record, knowing everything. Right. What you what starts to come out when you talk about this is like who you actually are. Right. Right. Like what you could go to, what you could have bought, what what you were able to actually experience. And when you say something like I hung out at CB, like in front of CBs a lot that tells me more about you than like if you were at every show. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know? and honestly, a lot of it, and I'll say this too, like this is more of like a retrospective take on the, on the whole time. Um, I like hardcore music. I still like hardcore music. I listen to it a lot still. Um, and hardcore music definitely at that time served such a major purpose for me in terms of just really just um, beating the fuck out of my feelings basically. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I was, very fucked up and I needed that at the same time. What I really needed were the people. Mm -hmm. What I really needed was the sense of community and the sense of belonging. And that's what I was working towards. Mm -hmm. And that was why, you know, faking it was sort of what I needed to do. You know, fake it till you make it. That was basically it. (laughs) And I made it eventually. (laughs) But making it means you don't have to do it anymore. It means you just tell a legit story about who you are and, and your relationship to this thing. Yes. Um, An end to that particular anxiety. Yes. I will say, so there's one other, I don't know if we're on a time budget here. We we uh, we got time for one more. Okay. There's, there's one more fakery that I think is, is exclusive to me. Um, (laughs) It's not a a sui generis (laughs) fake available only here (laughs) on faking it (laughs) with Mark and Gabe. It, um, and this, this, it's what's funny about it is that, um, well, I guess part of it was my faking it, and then one half of the the uh, the, the story is is not my part. But um, okay, so my friend Jim that I talked about, who was sort of like my shepherd into the scene, yeah. uh, you know, he was a skinhead. He was definitely, and back then, in 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 the eighties in New York, especially, skinheads were shady. So when we look at, we probably should have clarified. We kind of did clarify up front, but we should probably explicitly clarify. When we say skinheads, we we don't mean Nazis. Not always. Not right. always. Right. There are there are <laughs> right. many, exclusively. Many, there are right. many flavors of skinhead. Right. Right. Um, Most of the skinheads that hung out in the scene were just normal working class guys who liked punk rock. Right. Yeah. And you know that's cool. And then there were people who were sort of shady. And so like, what I mean by that is when we talk about like, especially now with the whole white nationalist and sort of like proud boys and all that stuff, like mm-hmm. to me, that that's a, that's sort of like a, re, a resurgence of a type of skinhead that existed in the eighties mm-hmm. who were the types of people who would say things like, oh, well, I'm not white power. I'm white pride. There's right. a difference. Yeah, right. I'm not a racist. I'm just proud to be white. Right. Right. And of course that came with a whole load of racist ideas, but they just wouldn't say that part. Right. Um, and there was even like, there was a, a house in Greenpoint called the white house where mm-hmm. a lot of skinheads lived yeah. and they were mostly white pride skinheads. Yeah. There's still and, some, uh, some swastikas uh, floating around up there. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, to this day. So, so it's definitely, you know, there were definitely people who were on the shady side ideologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Jim, the, the longer we were friends, uh, moved towards the shady side, uh-huh. got shadier and shadier until he became, he did become a full on Nazi. Mm. <laughs> and that was after we were friends. Right. Um, but one of the, I'll never forget, it's one of my uh, strongest memories from that time. Um, he was introducing me to a group of skinheads who I won't name. And, uh, for some reason he said, Hey, this is my friend, Norm. He's European. (laughs) And I was like, Hmm. No one's introduced me like that before. That's weird. We should we should clarify that that for uh, that is not how anyone would probably describe Norman, and not how you describe yourself. No, I mean I am. I mean I don't pa- think I've ever introduced anybody as as European from the, from the continent from which no. they're from which they're from. This is my right. friend Gabe, never, North American. I've never seen uh, yeah reason to do that. So, so there is there's there's truth to it. Um, I'm well, probably right, about yeah. 40% Iberian, so Spanish Portuguese. Right. And so that's cool. The rest of me is South American mm-hmm. and that's not in Europe. No, no. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I sort of didn't question it. I sort of just like left it. Yeah. And as, um, and he had done it I, at least one other time. I remember with some Philly skinheads that we met and it, I never asked him about it. And, and it, it sort of just, I had to sort of like realize that what was going on were that these people were sort of shady mm. and here comes this, you know, brownish boy coming into the mix. Yeah. What's his deal? He's European. He's mm. Spanish and Portuguese. That right. Right. And I just would not correct it. Right. right. Like it was sort of a different type of faking it where yeah. it was faking it by omission. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Did you at the, at the time were... Did you, did that register? Were you like, I'm going to not say anything? Were you made uncomfortable by it? I sat with it for a while because it really took me off guard. Mm -hmm. Um, And then eventually when I realized why he did that, I realized that, okay, number one, it sucks because why would I want to hang out with people who need to know whether or not I'm European? Yeah, and would care one way or another. But also- Okay, cool. He's trying to look out for me ultimately. Right. He's ultimately in a weird racist way trying yeah. to make me safe. Well, that right. was what I was going to ask is like did you feel scared or like in danger when that happened or even after sort of as a to, If I'm being totally honest, I felt scared and in danger that entire decade. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's what that scene was. Like yeah. I didn't hang out with the suburban straight edge kids for the most part. I, maybe towards the end of the decade, like by 89, I met some nice, nice boys. <laughs> <laughs> right. But most of the kids I was hanging out with, like when I first started coming up, were not nice boys. And they it didn't were, feel like a different kind of danger. It, it, um, it did feel like a different kind of danger because it's so based in your identity. Right. Right. Like it wasn't just like, oh, he's going to steal my boots. It could be like, oh, they're going to kill me. Yeah. You know right. what I mean? And when you add on that, the anxiety of knowing I'm gay, mm-hmm. nobody knew that. Right. Yeah. Gonna have to do some faking about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that anxiety, I mean, you know, I can always tell people I'm European. I just have to ask, act a little hyper masculine so they think I'm straight too. Right. Right. Like, so there's definitely that, uh, that sort of double where one was sort of faking it by omission. Um, 
you know, just letting other people say that. Right. And the other one was just sort of like lying. Like, yeah. you know, it was like clearly, you know, I was acting like a homophobe. I was calling people faggots. You know right. what I mean? Like that's what people did. Yeah. And, you know, fag bashing in the 80s by skinheads was a normal thing. Well, it was a normal did. thing for, for... For probably most of America. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> lots of people. Like it was the, it was right. like, you know, I mean, even when I was growing up, that was the like playground insult. Right. You know... It was a normal playground insult, right? And 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 so like on some level, there there felt like there was um there was no escape from that. I didn't necessarily feel extra oppressed by the homophobia and hardcore because it's not like the rest of the world was right. pro gay, right? <laughs> right. It all comes out in the wash, uh, right? Well, uh, and you can say yes or no, but also like the what you just described, this like he's European thing. It's like there's danger, like lurking almost everywhere about identity. Yes. So yeah. like, that's just another part of like who you may or may not be that you can like get away with. Right. And, and it's um, very, and, and this is sort of like the full circle moment, right. Where we're talking about like, really all of this boils down to who you are and who you want to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why we lie. Mm. Well, geez, Norman. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much. Yes, thank for you. For coming in. This has been awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, our first, I don't even need to listen back to this to know that our first guest was a wild success. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Woo. Yeah. Cool. Gabe. All right. Well, th thanks for coming. And uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. See you later. Bye bye. Bye. This episode of Faking It was edited by Evan O'Neill and me, Mark Sussman. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and to rate us and review us on iTunes. Also, you absolutely must, must, must check us out on Twitter because we are posting lots of material related to the show. You want to see that flyer Norman was talking about? It's super weird. You got to check it out. You want to read some of his writing? You want to hear his music? You want to see a mini doc about one of his bands? You absolutely do. It's all on our Twitter, which is at Faking It pod you can also find me at mark sussman and you can find gabe at jet set junta that is j-u-n-t-a you want to tell us something in more than 280 characters please 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 let us know you can also send us an email at fakingitpod at gmail.com okay all right i think that's it okay goodbye <laughs>